Uh, if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in the Gospel of Mark today, uh, Mark chapter 4. And if you're using one of those black hardcover Bibles that Andy mentioned just a moment ago, uh, page 839 uh, is where you will find today's text. It was uh, for me during my college years that I first encountered a purely academic approach to the Bible. Uh, maybe like some of you, I grew up in the church. I grew up around a lot of Christians, uh, men and women of faith who studied the Bible, some very in-depth study of the Bible, uh, but always studied with a personal faith as part of that, or at least what I would describe as a, a genuine desire or pursuit of faith. Uh, so the men and women I knew growing up would read the Bible seeking to understand who is this God and how, how am I to respond to him. In college, though, I had professors and other people that I interacted with who taught the Bible just like you would teach any other kind of literature. Um, so they taught about the history of the people and the places. They taught about the, the cultural context and the authors of the words of the Bible. And through that, it was the first time I'd ever encountered that, I learned a ton, but I was also struck by, even in that moment, struck by the, the coldness uh, and the impersonality of it. There was a, there was a distance to that whole process. It was as if these men and women had made some kind of commitment to not allow the words of the Bible to impact their life in any way. And I remember thinking, like, how could, can you, as a human being, spend so much time reading these words and become so knowledgeable about God and about God's people and the things of God and yet remain uh, so impersonal and so distant and removed from God himself? And in light of the text that we're reading today, the answer to that is because to encounter Jesus, when we encounter Jesus, we never remain neutral. It never evokes a neutral response. To encounter Jesus either softens us or hardens us. There's a, a saying that, that, as best we can tell, originated with the Puritans, and the saying is this, the same sun that melts the ice hardens the clay. The same sun that melts the ice hardens the clay. So when we encounter Jesus, we either become softer in belief or we become more hardened in unbelief. And not irreversibly, uh, not in a place where God's mercy and grace can't still rescue us, but some of the most brilliant, articulate, biblically literate people, and maybe you know some of these people, are also some of those most entrenched against belief. And that's in part, at least, because these numerous encounters that they've had with Jesus through God's word, they're not remaining objectively neutral even when they think they are. Even when they think they're standing at a distance from it and remaining objectively neutral, they're becoming increasingly hardened through that. We've been studying a, a series of Jesus' parables over these past few weeks. Uh, and if you're familiar with the gospel narratives, the gospel accounts of Jesus' life and ministry, then you know he, he frequently employs this method of teaching. He uses parables often. But as a teaching tool, and we see this today especially, Jesus' parables really serve as that sun that either melts the ice or hardens the clay. In this text that we're looking at today, uh, Jesus tells a parable about a sower. But then he steps back from telling that parable, and he answers a few of his disciples' questions about the purposes of parables. Jesus, why are you teaching this way that you are, are teaching? And what he says is that the purpose is to both reveal God's kingdom to those who believe, and at the very same moment, hide it from those who don't. 
And so as we prepare ourselves to read this text, really this text, but, but any text, anytime we come to the Word of God, we come to Scripture, as we prepare to do that, always approach the Bible with a sincere desire to believe what is true. So can I call you to that this morning? Always approach the Bible with a sincere desire to believe what is true. And some of you are there this morning. And so when I pray for us in a moment, you will be wholeheartedly with me that we're asking God to give us eyes to see and and ears to hear and hearts to understand. Some of you are not there. Some of you are here and you're just kind of considering what Christianity is and and whether or not you would like to believe this. And, And maybe you're skeptical uh, or maybe you're cynical that, all, that any of this is true. And that's okay. If that's where you are, I would say that's okay. Jesus welcomes that too. But you just need to know that even in these next few minutes, it's going to be impossible for you to remain objectively neutral. Even if your aim this morning in coming here was to be objectively neutral and just get a lay of the land, it will be impossible for you to remain objectively neutral. This, this glimpse of Jesus through his word will change you in one way or another. It will either be a process of softening you, it will be part of that, or it will be something that hardens you. And so because of that, my invitation is to come with this sincere desire, as much as you can find it in your heart, to hear and to believe what's true. John Stott uh, was a pastor for, for many years in England, and he often spoke with men and women who had important intellectual questions and objections to Christianity. And I find this fascinating that before he would actually engage in one of these conversations with someone across the table from him, he would ask, if I were to answer all of your problems to your complete intellectual satisfaction, would you be willing to change the way you live? Would you be willing to change the way you live? If I answered all your intellectual questions and problems, would you be willing to change the way you live? And very often the honest answer on the other side of the table was no. And whenever that's the case in our hearts, an encounter with Jesus will, in all likelihood, only further harden us. And the kingdom of God will be hidden from our hardened eyes and our hardened ears. So before I read our text today, I'm going to pray something that's known as a prayer for illumination. What I'm doing, that I've done that for, for many months, usually I pray it immediately after the text. I'm going to pray it beforehand this morning. But I'm going to ask God to give us these ears to hear and these hearts that desire to believe and to listen and respond and obey to what is true. So I invite you to pray with me. Let's pray. Open our eyes, O God, that we may behold wondrous things out of your law. Open our ears, O God, that we may hear what you will speak to those who turn to you in their hearts. Open our minds, O God, that we may understand what it means to revere you and to learn of your ways. Open our hearts, O God, that we may grasp the treasures of wisdom and knowledge hidden in Christ. And open our mouths, O God, that we may proclaim the mystery of the gospel and speak of it boldly. Amen. Amen. Mark chapter 40, verses 1 through 20. Listen now with open ears to this book that we love. Again he began to teach beside the sea. And a very large crowd gathered about him so that he got into the boat and sat in it on the sea. And the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables. And in his teaching he said to them, Listen, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. 
Other seed fell on rocky ground where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And he said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see but not perceive, and may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. And he said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word. And these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown among them, in them. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground. The ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then, when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. But those that, those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. This is God's word. So we're going to consider this text in two parts. We're going to look at the sower and then we're going to look at the soil. So first, let's talk about the sower. When Jesus gets into the the explanation of this parable to his disciples later on, the second half of the text, the emphasis there is really on how the four different kinds of soil respond. And so we'll get to that, but the parable itself, verses 3 through 8, Jesus is actually primarily emphasizing the work that is going on, the sower's work. And the sower in this parable is a picture of Jesus himself. The seed is the good news of the gospel, right? It's this message that Jesus himself has brought, that in him, the kingdom of God has come. Jesus left the glories of heaven. He came to dwell among humanity, to dwell among his people, and he is rapidly moving to the cross. Mark's gospel especially Uh, is a fast-paced narrative. It rushes everything. It rushes all the action toward the cross as quickly as possible. And there on that cross, Jesus will die for the sins of the world, and he will then rise from the dead. As all of this is unfolding, Jesus' message is that the kingdom of God has now broken through and that this is the time to see the climax of the redemptive work of God. And to see in the climax of the redemptive work of God happening and unfolding in Jesus, to turn away from our rebellion in repentance and to turn toward God in faith. So before we ever talk about or think about how different kinds of soil respond, we have to first see in this parable the initiative of the sower. Jesus has taken the initiative to come and to dwell in the midst of humanity. Jesus has taken the initiative to come proclaiming the kingdom of God, the message and the good news of God's kingdom, calling people to repent and believe. Before we ever have the opportunity to seek God, 
God is seeking us. He is making himself known. He's revealing his nature. He's revealing his character. And now, in Jesus especially, he's revealing the mysteries of the kingdom of God so that we might have the opportunity to perceive God's kingdom and to enter it ourselves. But don't just see here the initiative of the sower. See also the wastefulness of the sower. Or at least what you and I would deem incredibly wasteful. What Jesus describes here in the parable, it's the common agricultural practice of the day. A farmer would scatter seed before plowing. And so the seed that was scattered was scattered broadly and and indiscriminately. And that's what plays out in the parable. Of the four different kinds of soil on which the seed falls, only one is going to produce grain. This is not... Uh, at least in the West today or other parts of the developed world, it's not the method employed by farmers today. Why not? Well, because it's incredibly inefficient and it's wasteful. With today's machinery, farmers now plow and plant seed and then cover the dirt back up in about half of a second as as the tractor drives over top of it. And farmers measure very closely crop yield and they maximize the crop that their seed produces. So the same amount of seed today can can go a lot further than it would using this method here. There's a lot that's good about that. Uh, There's a lot that's good because we eat based on that. And I'll leave it to people who actually know what they're talking about. It's probably already obvious. I have no idea what I'm talking about when it comes to this topic. I'll leave it to them to debate the pros and cons of different agricultural methods. But as it pertains to the kingdom of God, here's the danger. Here's the danger. That through our westernized, industrialized, efficiency-minded lenses, God will appear wasteful. And what I hope you see more than anything this morning is how much we need God to be wasteful by our standards. It's how much we need him to be wasteful. The reason that I stand here before you this morning is because of the wastefulness of God. And the only hope that you or I or any of us have is Jesus's liberal extravagance in offering himself in his grace and offering widely and broadly the message of God's kingdom, right? God is wasteful and he is inefficient by our standards. In Luke chapter 15, Jesus tells another parable. It's one of his more well-known parables about a prodigal son. This young son takes the inheritance from his father early and he squanders it on a party lifestyle. Then he returns home where he is met not by condemnation and by being removed from the family, but he's met with the love and forgiveness of the Father. And it's this beautiful picture of God welcoming sinners home. But part of the scandal of that story that we sometimes miss is that the Father is under no obligation to give that inheritance money away before he dies. He gives a third of his net worth which for him certainly meant selling off some of his property or possessions, and he gives it to an irresponsible, self-centered, rebellious son, fully aware, fully expecting that the son is going to do some foolish things with what he gives him. So who among us, would you, would you tell a friend to do the same thing? What would you tell a friend in a similar situation? I have a hard time fathoming the scenario where I would counsel someone to give a third of everything they own to an irresponsible child. Right? Where's the wisdom in that? Where's the, where's the prudence in that? Somewhere, Dave Ramsey's head is exploding over the concept <laughs> that someone would do such a thing. 
but it is that wastefulness of the father in that parable that enables his son to hit rock bottom so that his son might return and receive his love. And it is the wastefulness of our God that scatters the seed as broadly as possible so that some will hear and believe. And Jesus, as this narrative unfolds, and many of you are familiar with it, he will waste himself. He will pour himself out to the point of death so that some, not all, but many, will look on him and believe and enter God's kingdom. So before we consider our response, look to the nature and the character of the sower and see in this parable the love of Jesus for the people of the world. That though he himself personally and his message will be met so many times throughout centuries with hardness and rejection and hatred and apathy, he will continue to liberally and extravagantly and wastefully hold out the invitation to life and salvation. Second, let's talk about the soil in this parable. When Jesus teaches this parable, he's speaking to a very large crowd, is what Mark tells us. Some of those among the crowd would be disciples. Uh, others would not be. Uh, many were probably there just out of curiosity, considering who this man was and how such a, a big number of people would come together to hear from him. In verse 10, though, by the time we get to verse 10, the audience has shrunk dramatically. He's now just talking with the 12 and a handful of other disciples. And as Jesus explains the parable, the emphasis really shifts from the sower's work to the soil's response. There are four different soils on which the seed falls that Jesus describes here. And they depict for us really four kinds of responses to Jesus and to his message. So the first one is a hardened response. A hardened response. It's a path that would have been uh, woven through a field that had been so compacted by people walking over it, so hardened by that, that it's now impervious to the seed. And Jesus says there in verse 15, these are those who upon hearing, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown. And when we hear Jesus say that in verse 15, immediately it introduces this idea that there are complex and interwoven components to our response. One that is internal and one that is external. Internally, there's our own human responsibility. So you and I are responsible for what we do with Jesus and his claims. We're responsible for how we respond to Jesus. When we hear that salvation is found only in the name of Jesus by believing in him and trusting his work, trusting his death and resurrection, we can either choose to believe that or we can choose to reject that. But externally, there is evil. And even specifically, evil that's personified in Satan himself. And that evil works to counteract the kingdom of God. So the Apostle Paul will say in 2 Corinthians that Satan blinds the minds of those who don't believe to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel. Most of us, probably the majority of us at least in this room, think more about the internal human responsibility piece of this and tragically little about the external. In his memoir, a pastor named Eugene Peterson writes about becoming friends with a Catholic nun named Sister Genevieve. And Sister Genevieve at one point says this to Eugene Peterson, Oh, you Protestants, you are so naive about evil. You know everything about sin, but nothing about evil. The prevalence of evil, the persistence of evil, the mystery of evil. 
You make cartoon characters out of evil so that you don't have to deal with it in your own households and workplaces, crouching at the door every time you open it. Or else you deny it and label everything that is wrong with the world as a sin you can name and then take charge of getting rid of. Because there's both internal sin and external evil that contribute to this kind of hardened response, we have to counteract that in two ways. One is that we've got to pursue softness. However we are able in our own responsibility, we've got to, we've got to respond with softness and openness to the claims of Jesus. We've got to pursue knowing and understanding who he is and what he says. But at the very same time, we must, even as we do together in the Lord's Prayer every week, pray for deliverance from evil. And pray that for ourselves and pray that for others. And pray even specifically in light of Jesus' parable here that Satan would not succeed in taking away the seed of the gospel from those who might otherwise receive it. The second response is a shallow response. The first one's a hardened response. The second one is a shallow response. So some will initially receive the word with joy, but then when suffering or tribulation or persecution comes, they will fall away. Choosing to follow Jesus. We, we talk about this uh, in premarital counseling times. Choosing Jesus and to follow Jesus is actually in some ways like choosing to get married. In that, when you're making the decision to get married, you are either nervous or you're naive. You're either nervous or you're naive. And you always fall to everybody, depending on our personality or circumstances or life history, family history, we fall on one side of that or the other. We're nervous or naive. That's true for choosing to get married. That's true for following Jesus. If we think that following Jesus will make our lives circumstantially easier or more comfortable, that's incredibly naive, right? It will not make your life circumstantially easier or more comfortable. But whether intentionally or unintentionally, that is actually one of the biggest lies that has been propagated by Christians and churches, primarily in Christian-majority wealthy parts of the world. Trust Jesus. He'll fix all your problems. Your life will be great. That's not true. That's not true. Not circumstantially, at least. So there are many, then, who with because of a, a burst of emotion or just even having glimpsed the beauty and worth of Jesus that is real, will say in immediate response to that, yes, I'm in. I want to follow Jesus. But they will have never in that process counted the cost. They will have never considered, as Jesus said to the Apostle Paul, how much you will suffer for the name of Christ. And so then when that cost comes, when that suffering comes, many fall away. And what this sounds like in everyday vernacular, and you've probably heard it some, maybe you've said this yourself, maybe you said that yesterday yourself. It sounds like this. It sounds like people saying things like, well, Christianity just didn't work out for me. Christianity just didn't, just didn't work for me. As if Christianity were a diet or were an exercise program rather than a lifestyle of continually dying to yourself so that you might, dying to yourself, be held up by the merciful and powerful and loving hand of God. So real joy, right? Not the shallow counterfeit, but real deep joy is life that goes through death and then comes out the other side as resurrection. If 
But, but by default, many of us want to start here at life and, and find a shortcut just to go straight to resurrection. This is what the, the, uh, an author named Paul Miller calls the J-curve, right? Life through death to resurrection. Many of us just want to go from life to resurrection. But if we think that that's what the Christian life is going to entail, if that's what we expect when we say yes to Jesus, we might very well be this rocky kind of soil. We spring up quickly with a lot of joy, and then when persecution and tribulation and trial comes, we fall away. So don't say yes to shallow joy. Instead of that, say yes to Jesus, where resurrection always comes through death, through suffering and tribulation. The third response is a divided response. Hardened response, shallow response, a divided response. Divided response is really where the the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, the desire for other things are like thorns that choke out the fruitfulness of the gospel's work in our lives. So these would be maybe those who receive the gospel kind of. They receive the gospel with a divided, preoccupied kind of devotion where rather than our, our ultimate allegiance, Jesus just becomes one among many allegiances. See, Jesus is not something that you and I can just add to our lives. Many, uh, whether, you consider, many w- whether they consider themselves to be a Christian or not, many understand the world and view the world with themselves at the, at the center of everything. That's kind of our just natural default posture in life. We put ourselves at the center. And then all around me at the center, I arrange the different aspects of my life. I've got my relationships with my family and my friends, uh, and I've got my job over here. And then maybe as another spoke on that wheel where self is at the center, maybe as another spoke is Jesus or faith or religion of some kind. But following Jesus is never meant to be part of our lives, even as we might say an important part of our lives. Right now, Jesus, as we sing together sometimes, Jesus is my life. He must be at the center of everything so that he's not just a spoke on the hub of myself at the center, but he being at the center shapes my view of all these other things. That I understand my relationship with my family and my friends through the lens of who Christ is and what he's done and what he's calling me to do and be. And I understand my relationships with family and friends that way, not only that, but my job that way. And I understand how, how I use my free time that way, how I rest and how I serve people and how I, uh, what hobbies I participate in, all in light of who Jesus is. So a question for us to consider this morning. Is your devotion to Jesus divided? Is your devotion to Jesus divided? Is there a part of your life that you knowingly or willingly are keeping Jesus out of? You've segmented and compartmentalized your life and you're saying yes to Jesus maybe in a few areas. You're saying no to Jesus in another one. So maybe you're fine with Jesus shaping your view of your job, what you do to make money, but not with your sexuality. Maybe you think Jesus needs to stay out of my bedroom and him and his kingdom and that has nothing to do or very little to do with my sexuality. Or maybe you're fine with Jesus shaping your view of your family and how you do family life together, but you say, Jesus, stay out of my wallet. My finances are my own. That has nothing to do with this. Jesus even specifically here in this text mentions the deceitfulness of riches. And he says that because like like little else, riches become a false sense of security. Jesus says elsewhere that it's hard, it's hard for a, it's impossible for a rich man to enter 
the kingdom of God. It's like trying to, to send a camel, a huge animal, through the eye of a sewing needle. And he says that precisely because riches lead us to this kind of divided devotion that chokes out the fruitfulness of the gospel. John Owen famously wrote, Be killing sin, or it will be killing you. Be killing sin, or it will be killing you. The picture of these thorns choking out the wheat is a great picture that I think illustrates that whole scenario. And so we have to identify areas in our lives where we are prone to a divided devotion. We need to ask God to put a spotlight on those areas in our lives. And then having identified them, we need to ask ask the Holy Spirit to empower us with diligence, with endurance, to choke those things to death before they choke us to death. The commands in Scripture about how to deal with sin, how to deal with a divided devotion, they're violent. I don't know if you've, you've encountered those before. They are violent pictures. Cast off the world of darkness, Romans 13. Put to death the deeds of the body, Romans 8. Put to death what is earthly in you, Colossians 3. So be killing those thorns in your life or they will be killing you. The fourth and final response is a receptive response. It's the one kind of soil, out of the four Jesus mentions, where the seed takes and endures and bears a 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold return. Which is to say that for, for these men and women, represented by this good soil, the gospel is fruitful and effective in their lives. God's grace completely transforms them inwardly, propels them outwardly to love God, to love one another, to love their neighbor, Those who receive Jesus and receive his message and respond in the way that this soil depicts, they are those who enter God's kingdom. They are those who then embody God's kingdom and propagate God's kingdom so that many more, through their words, through their witness, hear and believe and enter themselves. And this is the high note on which Jesus' parable and explanation ends. Not on the wastefulness or the inefficiency of the three soils that didn't work, but the one soil that is extraordinarily fruitful. It is worth it to Jesus to scatter his seed broadly for the sake of the good soil. Now, if you're like me, you hear this parable, or if you're familiar with this parable especially, you hear this, and I at least want to run immediately to the implications for how I now go and share the good news of the gospel to others. And maybe like many of you, if you have a background in the church, I've been part of Christian groups that incorporate this language and this imagery into their pursuit of trying to do that well. We talk about broad sowing. We talk about how do we discern kind of the soils that exist around us? Where is the good soil? Okay, that's not wrong. It's actually really good to think about the implications of this on how we share the gospel. But Jesus' parable and his explanation here in Mark 4, there's not a call in this to evangelism. There's a call to evangelism in other parts of Jesus' words, but it's not here. These words are a call to hear and believe in your own heart. To hear and believe. They're a call to, for each of us, consider Jesus and to consider his message and to consider our own receptivity to him. So when is the last time that you rejoiced in the wasteful inefficiency of Jesus? Are you today, in this moment, perceiving the extravagant love that Jesus has displayed and continues to display to call you to hear and believe? If you're a Christian and you've never done this or it's been a really long time since you've done this, 
reflect on your story. Right? How did you come to faith? Where did you encounter Jesus? Where did you encounter the good news of Jesus' message? And in light of your story, how wasteful or inefficient does Jesus appear in the length of time it's taken you, not only to have your eyes open to it the first time, but also for Jesus to continually transform you in the days or years or decades since. Jesus wastes himself to show mercy to you and to me. So let's be grateful that in his eyes, those who come and believe, they are worth the wastefulness. That in his eyes, this is not wastefulness at all. This is actually precisely the redemptive, rescuing work that Jesus has come to do. If you're not a Christian, which of these soils most resembles your current response to Jesus? Which of these most resembles your current response to Jesus? Are you hardened? Is your life, your soul, is it impenetrable? What I would offer to you today is that your response, even to these few minutes we've had together today, your response to this will not be neutral. So will encountering Jesus and his words today, will that soften you? Or will that make you more hardened? Or maybe you're here and, and you're one of those people, you bought into that shallow, naive kind of joy. And maybe you were sold a false bill of goods that, that trusting in Christ would make all of your life circumstantially easier. And today you find yourself hurting and you find yourself disillusioned trying to pick up the pieces of that. I need you to hear me on this if that's you. The joy was not the lie. The joy of, that, of, of, of life in Jesus was not the lie. The shallowness was the lie. It's not possible to skip directly from life to resurrection. You have to go through death first. And there remains for you, if that's where you find yourself today, there remains for you the offer of deep and genuine joy if you will but cling to Jesus from life through death to resurrection. Or are you divided? Are the cares of the world or the deceitfulness of money or a compartmentalization of your life, is that choking out what would otherwise be the fruitful experience of God's love and grace in your life? If that's you, you must decide. You must decide. Jesus will not be added as a part of your life, even an important part. He must be the center. He must be your very life. And so kill those thorns before they kill you. And in all of this, because we're never meant to pursue this as isolated individuals, ask for help from the men and women in this room. I am hopeful, I'm even more than hopeful, I'm confident that you will find patience and that you will find empathy among the men and women of this room because this is not just your story, this is our story too. In Jesus, the kingdom of God has come and in Jesus, the kingdom of God is coming. Salvation and life are found in him. You who have ears to hear, may you hear. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, we admit our need for you. As we sang it together this morning, every hour we need you. And so for those of us who have followed you for a long time, we come again this morning asking you to soften our hearts, 
because we have a tendency to harden them even after we've come to believe. And for any here today who have never come to know you or put their trust in you, Jesus, I pray that you would do the work that your spirit does and break up the hardness of hearts and give us ears to hear and give us eyes to see the beauty and the worth, Jesus, of what you have done for us. Jesus, thank you for your wastefulness, at least, at least what we would deem by our standards wasteful and inefficient. And thank you that your wastefulness is our hope. And as we get to come to this table this morning, we see the cost and we see how you specifically poured yourself out to the point of death, giving your body, shedding your blood. May we rejoice in what your wastefulness has accomplished, is accomplishing, and will accomplish in our lives and in the lives of many. May we see at this table just the invitation of the kingdom of God held out wide and held open to all who would see and believe. Come now asking you to do this work in our hearts. We pray this, Jesus, in your name. Amen.